Well, we um, have been in the midst of a three-chapter answer that Paul is giving to the church in Corinth about meat offered to idols. He started this back in chapter 8, and it extends through the end of chapter 10. What are they to do? How are they to consider this food that they had before them that came from an animal that was put on an altar for a false god? That's quite a question, isn't it? And Paul's given a long answer here. He's ebbed and flowed whether he was staying directly on point or not. But we're getting back on point as we're closing out his argument uh, as he gives an answer to what they should do. Last week, we looked at verses 6 to 13. He was giving all kinds of examples about Israel's past and ways that they failed. They were complaining and grumbling and also participating in idol worship. They made the golden calf. He quoted Exodus 32. And our only conclusion, as we learn from their examples, our only conclusion can be, verse 14, flee from idolatry. That's the only conclusion we can have when we look at those examples and when we hear Paul's heart, his answer to this question. We must flee from idolatry. And so today we're going to continue that line of thinking. Verses 14 to 22 is what we'll look at. But before we get into it, How about I open with another word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your holy word, that you have inspired it and preserved it for us. And we ask that today that I would not get in the way of your text, but that your word would be clear to your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In verse 15, Paul says in his letter to the church, I speak to you as wise men. You judge what I say. There's no reason to think Paul is being sarcastic here. This, he's really truly talking to them as, judge what I say. Verse 16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What Paul is doing in this section now as he wraps up his answer to the Corinthians is he's placing an emphasis, an inspired emphasis. He is an apostle writing Scripture. He's placing an inspired emphasis on the corporate worship of the triune God. What we're doing here this morning, of course, is corporate worship. We are together as one body with many members worshiping the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And he's placing an emphasis on the unity that we have, using the picture of communion. The event that we observe on a monthly basis here at this church, it exemplifies the unity of the church and the solidarity of the church. Before we can get too far, though, we have to answer the question, what is the church? (laughs) That's a, a good question to answer. It's a good answer for you to have in your mind, to have this settled. And I'll just give you a quote from the New City Catechism, which is what we took our children through not that long ago. But the New City Catechism defines church this way. It's a good definition. A community elected for eternal life and united by faith who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. What is the church? A community elected for eternal life and united by faith foundationally, as a church body, we are a unified body of believers. We have a common confession. We come together, we meet together, we sing the same songs, we study the same scriptures, and we have the same confession of Jesus Christ. 
that Jesus Christ, who is God, came in the flesh because of our sin. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, and He died the death that we deserve, that if we believe that He did these things and rose from the dead, we can be made right with God forever by faith. This is our common confession. We are the body of Christ, a unified body. And our unity is put on display in our practice of communion. Perhaps you go through communion each, each month as we have the elements that are on the table and we'll often just come up and we grab and we go back to our seats. And even though we wait until the end and we all eat together and then drink the cup together, perhaps you still have in your mind that this is an individual affair. Well, in one sense it is, but in a greater sense it is not. Communion, of course, means to commune, to fellowship, to partake. And when we have communion, it's not just us individually one-on-one with God, each one of us, but it's all of us together as the body of Christ, communing with God through the observance of the Lord's table. So Paul puts our minds there in this passage as a defense against idolatry. Communion gives us a profound picture of our unity with Christ and our unity with one another. It's a profound picture when you think about it. It really is. And far too often, especially if we've been going to church for a while, uh, it just becomes something that we do. But if you pause to dwell on it, and hopefully you can all do that this morning as we look at this text, we see really how profound it is. Look again at verse 16. Paul says, "...is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ?" At that time, it's likely that they just passed around one cup. And of course, especially today during the COVID era, we're all very scared of that, right? You can't pass around one cup uh, and do such a thing. Germaphobes like me were not cool with that before the COVID era anyway. But uh, one cup passed around. What if we all drank of the actual one cup? Wouldn't that have a deeper meaning, a deeper significance, paint a greater picture of the unity of what's happening? And That's what's being referenced here is the one cup. It's a singular noun, the cup, singular, of blessing. He says we bless it. We give a blessing. We are to give thanks for the elements. This is what the Lord Jesus instructed us to do. This is from Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. Matthew 26, 26, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, this, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Both with the bread and with the cup, before they shared in it, he gave thanks. He gave a blessing over the elements. It is interesting as we look at our text today, you notice that Paul brings the cup up first uh, before the bread. We're not sure why this is the case. It's, I think, the only instance in Scripture where it's reversed, but the meaning, of course, is still the same. We share in one cup, and we give a blessing over it, and it is the cup of blessing. Not only do we bless the Lord for the cup and thank the Lord for the cup, but there's blessing tied to the cup itself. The section I just read to you from Matthew 26 was, of course, when Jesus was sharing the Passover meal with His disciples. That's when He instituted the Lord's Supper. 
And in that Passover meal, there were a lot of things that went on. And if you've ever seen a Messianic Jew, meaning a Jewish person who's become a Christian, explain all the significance of the symbols in the Passover Seder, you know it's a very profound thing. Uh, Communion itself is profound, but when you consider Passover, the background of Passover that God gave to the Israelites thousands of years ago, and how there are pictures built into that meal that are fulfilled in the gospel, it's really something. And there were multiple cups that were passed around during the Passover meal. The cup of blessing was the third of four cups. And it's likely that when Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper, that He had that cup of blessing um, in that Passover meal as He instituted the cup representing the new covenant of His blood. And of course, as we consider how that is applied to us, we are members of the new covenant by faith in the gospel. We can say it is a blessing to share in that cup, isn't it? It is absolutely a blessing that we've been made right with God through the finished work of Jesus and that the cup, even though there's no power in the cup, there's no power of the juice or the wine that's in the cup, there's power in knowing what it represents. It's a symbol that reminds us of the power of God in the gospel. The Bible presents the gospel as the very power of God. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. And we're reminded of the gospel and what Jesus did in our stead each time we take communion. Sharing communion with the church is a blessing, a great blessing. And we won't get too far into the details of communion because in chapter 11... There's a big section on observing the Lord's table and taking communion, and we'll actually have a three-part series on communion when we get to that. But, of course, there are different views on communion, transubstantiation, which the Roman Catholics believe, consubstantiation, which the Lutherans believe. Uh, Calvin and the Reform group have had a different view from Zwingli and other people in the Reform group, and we'll talk about all of that in weeks to come. But for now, I want you to know that the elements aren't powerful in and of themselves, but the elements are powerful insofar as they remind us of the gospel. And what, the, what communion does and what Paul is doing in answering this question is our minds are brought back to what is most important, that Jesus is Lord, that He has saved for Himself a people, and that He has brought us together as one body to worship Him alone. That is what's most important. Jesus is Lord. He has saved for Himself a people, and we together have been brought in to worship Him alone. Through communion, we are channeled into a reminder of the gospel. I hope this happens to you each month when we observe the Lord's table. I hope you're reminded very specifically of what Jesus has done for us, not just for you, even though that's true, but for us together. We're reminded of the gospel, and our common confession. It's a beautiful confession, isn't it, that we share, that Jesus is who He said He was, that He is our Lord and Savior, and that we are His body. Isn't that a beautiful, wonderful, delightful thing? It should bring a smile to our faces. But there isn't just one cup, there's also one bread that symbolizes this. Again, picking up in the middle of verse 16, not just one cup, but he says, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Specifically in verse 17, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 
Again, at that time, it was likely that they just had one loaf that they all broke off of. And again, as germaphobe, I'm thankful that we already have pre-broken pieces. That's great. <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge fan of the pre-broken pieces. Uh, but there is something, though, when you see the one loaf and you all pull your own piece off the loaf, there's just one bread that we share in. And as Mike prepares the bread for us each month, it's not that he makes a batch for Andy and then he makes a batch for Tyler and then he makes a batch for Joe. It's one batch. We all are partaking of the same loaf in that sense, aren't we? That it's a representation of our unity and solidarity in the gospel. Just as the cup reminds us of his blood, the bread reminds us of his body. And not just uh, his body that was nailed to the cross, but the church body. That's the parallel that Paul is drawing here. We are one. The bread is one, and we are many but one body. Again, verse 17. Just as there is one loaf, Christ had but one body, and there is but one church body. You see, we all come to Christ as individuals, don't we? But we remain bound. We come as individuals, and it is a very individual experience when we come to Christ, but we remain with Christ bound together. We don't remain to Christ isolated as individuals. We remain in Christ by His power bound together. And sometimes that feels really great, and other times it can be, you know, kind of annoying that here we are with these people that God's placed us with, depending on if you're more introverted or extroverted or more judgmental or not. But it's a beautiful thing that God's doing in the world, that He has taken people from every background and placed them into one body. We sang about this in our first song this morning. Every age, every race, we're bound together in Christ, one body, unified, solid. And the Lord's Supper is a mechanism that channels our thinking to remind us not just of what Jesus did for you and me personally, but what He has done in building the church corporately. Communion, of course, is an ordinance, and again, we'll explain this more in the weeks to come, but it's an observance that's been commanded by Jesus that we do this, that we do this in remembrance of Him, and that's why we do it on a regular basis, because God uses our partaking in the table to impart to us grace through the gospel. And it's not a means to grace, it's a means of grace. We're not earning God's grace by observing communion, but through observing communion, aren't we experiencing more of God's grace? Aren't we experiencing more of God's goodness and faithfulness and love? Because we're reminded afresh of the gospel itself. Louis Burkhoff said this, the grace received in the sacrament, and he's Presbyterian. Well, he's Baptist now because he's in heaven, but um, he said, because he was Presbyterian, he used the word sacrament. The grace received in the sacrament does not differ in kind from that which believers receive through the instrumentality of the word. The sacrament merely adds to the effectiveness of the word and therefore to the measure of the grace received. It is the grace of an ever closer fellowship with Christ, of spiritual nourishment and quickening, and of an ever-increasing assurance of salvation. These things happen as we take of the Lord's Supper together. We're renewed in our spirit by doing this. It's God's design. So now, having said all that, 
We gather together to be found at the Lord's table in communion. It exemplifies the gospel. It exemplifies our unity as one body and our solidarity as Christ's body. But what Paul is going to say now, establishing that, is that we are not to be found at another table. You've been placed at this table. You are not to be found at another table. There are two tables, not just Christ's table, but there's the world's table. With all of its false religions, with all of its false ideas, with all of its sin, with all of its error, that's a different table. They have different lords and different masters in the world at their table. Yet the Christian in the body of Christ has but one table, the table of the Lord Jesus. Now, perhaps for some of you, this is a good time for you to pause and to think about which table you'll choose. Now, we're going to find out in our text that we've already all chosen a table. You're already at one table or another. But perhaps it's a time to stop and to think, which table are you at? He points to Israel again as he gets into this, verse 18. He says, look at the nation, Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Now, in Israel, there was always a high priest, and the high priest would make sacrifices on behalf of the people. And what we see in Israel's history is after the sacrifice was made, people would come and eat from the altar. They would be sharers in the sacrifice that was made at the altar. And what they were doing was truly fellowshipping with what that sacrifice represented. They were fellowshipping with Yahweh. They were coming together as participants in the very altar itself. They would eat from that altar. And you can see now Paul's getting really close to the idea of meat offered to idols, isn't he? You can see the connection. Israel would come together, eat from that sacrifice, and that made them sharers in the altar. That made them participants in fellowship with Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so it is with communion. Not that the church has a priest and not that we make a sacrifice and we all just come and eat from the altar. You know that's not how that works. Jesus is our final priest. He's the great high priest. He's made the final sacrifice. And as we share in communion, we remember what Christ has done as our priest and as our sacrifice. And we are fellowshipping with the Lord when we do so, aren't we? We're fellowshipping with one another, just as they did in Israel, and we're also fellowshipping with the Lord, just as it was in Israel. So just as it was with Israel, just as it is now with the church, so it also is with false worship the world's table. When you go to the world's table and share in the sacrifices made at the world's table, you become sharers with their lowercase g gods. You become sharers, where Paul's going here is, with demons. You're sharing in demons. And this is sinful. It's damaging in the life of a believer. Now, the Corinthians, of course, had a propensity to join in with these false rituals. If you remember back in chapter 6, Paul was talking about the importance of sexual purity, acting moral, behaving morally as Christians in honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. And apparently it was still a problem in Corinth that believers were going to the temple, engaging in temple practices, even visiting the temple prostitutes. Now think with me for a moment. Can you imagine In Corinth, the early church gathered together in the midst, fearing persecution, all sorts of things. They gather together and have communion. They have the bread and they have the cup. And then perhaps moments later, hours later, a day, two later, one of them is going off into the temple 
the pagan temple to worship some false god through some false means? How unthinkable is this? To join in false worship as a believer. That's wrong on every level. It's dangerous on every level. They were joining, some of them were joining in pagan practices and observances. Look at me with, or look with me at verses 19 and 20. 19, what do I mean then that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Well, things just got a little real there in the text, bringing up demons, huh? Well, let's discuss this, and I want us to think about our theology partaking. Your translations might say uh, partaking in demons or sharing in demons. And let's consider a theology of sharing or a theology of partaking. It's really the word fellowship. It's the same root word where we get the word fellowship. It means to partner in, or to contribute to, or to identify with. Paul is saying, I do not want you to partner with demons. I do not want you to contribute to the realm of demons. I don't want you to identify with demons. That's what it means to partake or to share. And we see in our passage today that this word comes up quite a bit, verses 16 and 17 and 18. We see a good idea of sharing or participating or partaking or fellowshipping. It's very good that we share in Christ. It's very good that we fellowship with one another. These are all good instances of the theology. And then we see bad instances of it in verses 20 and 21, this idea of fellowshipping with demons. Becoming a sharer in demons, what an, a, a scary thought, Right? When you start talking about angels and demons, usually people have a lot of questions and usually people are pretty scared. But this is a reality, isn't it? Angels are real. Demons are real. The spiritual world is real. It's all around us all the time. And yet we often become just so blind to it for a variety of reasons. But when you become a sharer in demons or when you're walking down a road that will lead you to such a place, you are truly, even as a Christian opening yourself up to real danger. You are opening yourself up to great harm and evil influence in your life. And there are three ways that I want us to think about this, what it means for a believer to become a sharer in demons. And the first thing is that you have to know that it's possible. You have to know that it is possible for a believer to engage in such an act where that person is then a sharer in demons. Now, that doesn't mean that the believer can be possessed by a demon. Unbelievers can be possessed by demons. We see that all over Scripture. In, very, in several narratives, you see demons possessing unbelievers. Believers cannot be possessed by a demon. However, believers can be greatly influenced by a demon. You, as a Christian, are not immune to the influence of demons, and you have to recognize that's a possibility for the trajectory of your life, depending on how you live. You may be influenced by demons, depending on where you find yourself at an altar, you may be influenced by demons. Secondly, there is a real spiritual effect that happens. So number one, you have to know it's possible. Number two, you have to know 
that there's a spiritual effect that demons can have on your life. Paul says here in our text today, is an idol anything? Well, of course, no. I mean, they built these little idols out of wood or stone or whatever it may be. Is that anything? Well, no, it's not real. It's an inanimate object. It has no life in it. But what Paul is saying is there's a true force behind that. Even though there aren't many gods out there, as though the world pretends there are, especially in Corinth with their god of this and their god of that, those gods aren't real. But there are demonic forces that are behind those gods, true forces that can have a true spiritual effect even in the life of a believer. You can be harmed. You are not indestructible. So just as you are not immune to their presence, you are not immune to being destroyed. You are not indestructible. And then finally, there's an incompatibility aspect that must be seen. Look down at verse 21. Paul says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. What this means is, if you are under the influence of the dark forces in the spiritual realm, if you're under the influence of a demon, you are not under the influence of Christ. You can't have both. You can't be worshiping Christ and worshiping a demon. You can't be influenced by Christ and be influenced by a demon. You're not able to play both sides. So you're not immune, you're not indestructible, and you're not able to have both Christ and demons influencing you at the same time. But what Paul encourages us with is that this is all reversed by abiding in Christ. He's focusing their minds on the communion event where we commune with one another, abiding in Christ, being reminded of the gospel. He's emphasizing our Christian unity that provides the antidote to any type of demonic influence that we'll have in our lives. Just as a demon will influence you for the worse will open you up to all sorts of tragic things in your life. In Christ, there's security. Just as in the dark side of the spiritual realm, there will be all sorts of things that can affect your soul for the worse. In Christ, there's holy, holy, holy living. There's beauty. There's love. There's true fellowship and security. It's worth noting again, that this first reference to communion that we see in the letter is emphasizing solidarity in the community. Uh, turn back with me to chapter 6, just a page or two back. Chapter 6, verse 17. It is important as we approach the Christian life to remember that there's a very real individual sense in which we are joined with Christ. Look at me, or look with me. I keep saying look at me. Don't do that. Look with me at verse 17, uh, chapter 6, verse 17. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, this does happen on an individual basis, doesn't it? As you believe and you are uh, submitting to the gospel of Christ, truly believing in the gospel of Christ, you are one with Christ on an individual basis. But just as is it just as it is important to remember that, it's also important that we partake of communion together, that we partake of Christ together, that we believe in the gospel together, that we share in Christ together. We don't do this on our own, but we do this truly corporately 
we share in Christ corporately together. So what's going on in false worship? People are sharing in demons corporately together. People are sharing in false worship led by Satan's army together. They're being influenced together. They're being harmed spiritually together. Now, this applies to every false religion and every destructive philosophy that exists. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians 10. This is 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is the Christian life battle, isn't it? And it's not flesh and blood. It's spiritual. You're dealing with all kinds of spiritual forces and influences all the time in your life. And so often, this is neglected. But it applies to every one of us. I want us to dwell on this for a minute because some of you might be thinking, I don't do Ouija boards and stuff like that. So, I, I mean, I, I'm not in the realm of demons because I stay away from all of that occultic stuff. Because many of you do stay away from that, and that's good. Um, but that's not the only place where demons are found. That's not the only place where Satan has influence. That's not the only place where the prince of the power of the air is affecting the spirits of the children of God, is it? You think about in the letter uh, 1 John, he talks about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. He says that comes from the world, not from God. And whose realm is the world? Now, we know ultimately this is my Father's world. We've seen that, right? But who has been given a measure of power to rule and to have influence? Well, Satan has. Again, he's the prince of the power of the air. He's the God of this age, Scripture says. There's a considerable amount of influence that God has given the evil one and his demons in this life, in this place, at this time. And so if you're thinking, well, look, I... I don't listen to, you know, the, that bad music that brings demons into the house or whatever. I don't, I don't have a dream catcher or practice, you know, all those, those types of things. I'm not, you know, being affected by that. You're naive. You're absolutely naive. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, does that come from God or does that come from the evil one? We have to say that the influence that exists there isn't a godly one. And this can show up in ways that we as 21st century Americans deem subtle. But boy, when we get to heaven and we have a perspective of this life, we'll see things a lot more for what they are. Those of you running the rat race of life, trying to keep up with the Joneses, demonic. It's demonic. Total, utter distraction from what you should be doing. Worldly. Carnal. Addicted to pornography? You think that's godly? No. You think it's neutral? No. It's demonic. 
It's absolutely demonic. Being consumed by greed in your life, selfishness, always just wanting what you want and making life to where you get what you want. Demonic. That's demonic. We look at these things and we think, well, demons only exist whenever someone's, you know, running around and showing great signs of strength and everything else because there's very obviously a demon involved. Well, maybe in those cases, but the vast majority of the time we experience the influence of the world of Satan's realm and even of demons in ways that we just consider to be subtle. Being influenced by the world's system. And it's not just in those ways, but also, of course, in true false religion, formalized false religion. Every church that's meeting even on this day that rejects the biblical gospel, that rejects the God of the Bible, what are they doing? They're sharing in demons. They have come together to another table. They are not at the Lord's table. You don't have to be at this church to be at the Lord's table. We talked about this in our Sunday school class. There are a variety of Christian denominations. There are a variety of churches out there around the world that uphold the truth of God's Word, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We will be in heaven together. But there are also a variety of so-called churches out there that are just houses of demons. There are all kinds of strongholds that false religions have to put heresy in the lives of people through the influence of demons. This isn't This life isn't, pick whichever road you want, we all go to the same place, we'll all end up with God in the end. That's not how Paul is treating this. Paul says when you go into those temples and you engage in that worship, you are partaking in demon fellowship. And I know it might sound harsh to maybe some Americans who have just grown really soft in a lot of ways, that you can't talk that way, the Bible talks that way. It's not that it's my opinion that they're all going to hell. It's the Bible says they're worshiping demons. Demons are their God, not the true creator. It's it's a hard word. I don't deny that, but it's also just the truth. We have to say no to partnering with demons. Don't go individually over there to that temple, to worship and to do that thing, to engage in that practice. That's demonic. And as a church body, collectively, we have to reject this notion of ecumenicism, that everybody's just on the same path to the same place. We have to reject that. We can't ever fall into this false notion that everyone's okay. Everyone is not okay. That's the first step in understanding the gospel. Everyone is not okay. (laughs) So the reality is that people are worshiping demons despite what they may say. And this happened, of course, in Israel. Turn all the way back to Deuteronomy 32 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 32, the fifth book of your Bible. And see how this happened in the life of Israel. And I want you to remember as we look at this passage that the Israelites were not walking around saying, Isn't this so great that we've rejected the God who has saved us? As they engaged in idolatry, very often they weren't saying, we are now idolaters, everybody. Yay, isn't this great? They thought what they were doing was right. They thought what they were doing was appropriate for Yahweh, the God who had saved them. 
But even though they thought that, let's look at the reality. Deuteronomy 32, starting at verse 15. It starts us off with a very strange term, Jeshurun. Now, Jeshurun doesn't show up very much in the Bible, but this is God's affectionate name for Israel. It's an affectionate name, and he's speaking to Israel. So you could just insert Israel in your mind there and move on. It says, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him. That's Israel, forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you, and forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are not a people." I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation, for a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. That's a strong word for idol worshipers, those who thought they were right with God, and yet their hearts were far from them. And you would have to think that this chapter, Deuteronomy 32, was in Paul's mind as he wrote 1 Corinthians 10, as he he was instructing God's people to stay away from idols. What Paul is saying to the Corinthians back in our text for today is he's saying very strongly, refuse pagan temple worship. Strong terms from Paul categorically reject any pagan temple worship. You are not to be found worshiping false gods who are actually demons. That's what Paul is saying to them. But if you've been a good student and have remembered some highlights from chapters past, look at 1 Corinthians 8 again with me. It seems as though Paul has changed his tone since we were in chapter 8. If you remember, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul started talking about this subject. He started giving his answer, and it seemed like at the beginning he was saying, look, it's a matter of conscience. Do you have a strong conscience or a weak conscience? If your conscience is strong, go eat whatever you want, wherever you want, and just make sure you don't cause your brother to stumble, because those who are weak, being accustomed to the idol until now, they think the idol is a real God, and you'll cause them to stumble. Let's look at that again. Chapter 8, verse 7, Paul writes, Not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren, 
and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now, this is an interesting passage, because look at verse 11 again. The location of the dining experience, it says, is the idol's temple. Paul is basically making the argument, look, if you go into an idol's temple and you're seen by a weaker brother and you cause him to stumble, was it really worth it? (laughs) And the answer, of course, is no. Paul says at the end, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again, if that's what's causing him to stumble. Paul, though, says in verse 9 that this is a liberty. It's a Christian liberty that the believer has, whether you eat or you don't eat. Well, which is it, Paul? Is it I eat or I don't eat? It's a liberty of mine? Or I'm a sharer in demons? (laughs) Which one is it? Well, in chapter 8, I believe Paul was speaking of a different situation. It seems to me that in chapter 8, Paul was talking about the believer who was eating in the temple courts, not going into the temple to practice pagan worship with other people, but was instead in the temple courts after the sacrifice was made, when the meat was still available, he was there and he was eating, and that's a matter of conscience, whether you do or whether you don't. But now it seems that Paul is talking about specifically participating in pagan worship. I thought Robert Gramacki described this really well. He says, in the present section, Paul wanted to demonstrate that participation in the pagan feast within the temple actually was a misuse of Christian liberty and really involved them in fellowship with the evil world of demons. So in the one sense, you're outside of the pagan practices, worship practices, and you're just eating food among the pagans. That's one thing. But to actually go into the temple, join in with a ritual, and go through the motions with them, you are then sharing in demons. I think that's the distinction that we have to make here. Because again, Paul says that the food itself is not bad. That's back in verse 19 of our text today. The food itself isn't bad, but false worship, of course, is an abomination. You can think of Paul in Acts 17 when he was at Mars Hill. Before he was at Mars Hill, he was there in Greece where Corinth is. And he was walking around and he saw all their gods. He even saw the inscription to the unknown God. Was it sinful for him to be there? Well, no, he was in the marketplace. Even though he was surrounded by idols and by idol worshipers, it wasn't wrong for him to be there. Now, if he would have joined in and said, hey, that's a great idea. We should worship to the unknown God just in case we've missed one. Well, that would be wrong. He would become a sharer in demons. And so as the Corinthians were going about their life in and around Corinth, if they stumbled upon uh, in the temple courts, which were extensive beyond the temple itself, as if they were there and they were among pagan people who were eating food that, yeah, okay, came from an animal that was sacrificed to their God, but that was, you know, earlier in the day or whatever, could they join in? Was that a matter of liberty? I think it was, as long as it was done with wisdom. But going into the temple and participating in that false worship, never appropriate. It's never appropriate for a Christian to forsake the table of the Lord for the table of the world, to reject worshiping Christ alone as Lord to go and join in with worldly philosophy or worldly worship of a false god. You cannot worship Christ if you are sharing in false worship. It's one or the other, verse 21 says. And Paul's answer is going to be wrapped up in the remaining verses as we finish off the chapter in the next week or two. 
But for now, let's stop with verse 22, where Paul leaves off with a couple of questions. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? Now, this is, these are interesting questions, and there's a little debate about what he means by these things. But I think I can sum up by saying this. The Lord responds to our worship, either for our blessing or for our ruin. The Lord is not far off so that He's just unresponsive or ignorant of what we're doing. He's very involved, isn't He? He's here around us. He's with us. And if you're a believer, He's in us each and every day. And so He responds to our worship, whether that's for our blessing or for our ruin. Because God does judge false worship, doesn't He? He is still the judge. However, if a believer is careful to worship God in the way that He has prescribed, if a believer sees the glory of Christ and pursues that alone, there's great blessing, great blessing in worshiping God. So Paul asks, are you going to challenge the Lord? Is that what you're going to do, Corinthians? Are you going to challenge Him? God and His angels, of course, don't fellowship with demons. You think you guys can fellowship with demons? Are you stronger than God? Absolutely not. He's asking the question, are you going to be able to overcome God's discipline in the midst of your disobedience and your licentiousness? And of course, the answer is no. So consider these things as we close. First, consider going back to communion, the picture of communion that Paul gave us. Consider where is your identity in your fellowship? Where is your identity and fellowship? Is it wrapped up in Christ and His bride? Is it just encapsulated by Christ and His bride? What if we asked your friends outside of this church, where's that person's identity and fellowship? Now, that doesn't mean you have to like cut yourself off from people. We've talked about that in 1 Corinthians. That's not it at all. But where do you find your identity as a child of God who is in the body of Christ? Is that your passion? Consider that. Secondly, what's your motivation for sharing in the Lord's table? Is it a reflection of the gospel that you've believed? To be nourished by the grace of God? Or do you have a false view of it? Do you see it as a work? A time where you can come and be cleansed? I knew a guy once who said, don't you just feel extra clean after eating communion? Okay, well, in a sense, maybe that can be taken the right way. But we're not coming to the table to get recleaned. We've been cleaned once for all in Jesus Christ. We don't have to come back to be recleaned. We come back because this is our identity with Him individually and with each other corporately. So, what's your true identity and fellowship? Is that reflected in your sharing in communion? And then finally, let me leave you with this. If you have a proper gospel perspective and you're pursuing worship of your God alone, keep going. Keep going. We talked last week about running and resting. You're running a race. Now rest. <laughs> Just sit down and rest, but keep running. <laughs> it's both. The Christian life is both. Spiritually, once for all, forever, you are at rest. But you have this life to follow, pursue Jesus with His people. That's what this life is for. Keep going. 
There are all types of distractions in the world that have demonic influence, that come from Satan's realm, that seek to pull you away and make you sharers in demons. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. I learned in my junior high drafting class that the best way to draw a straight line when you don't have uh, a straight edge with you is to look at the point where you're going and to just make a quick move and just to draw. When you have your eyes fixed on that point, you can draw a straighter line than if you were following the pencil all along and you end up missing the target or there are ups and downs. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. He is the one who holds you fast. And through this life, as you are continually fixed on Him, He will strengthen you day by day, not letting you veer off to the left or to the right. But with Him and by His Spirit, lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles you. Reject outright false worship and sharing in demons the philosophy of the world and pursue the God of the Scriptures. Bow the knee to Jesus alone, and He will preserve you through the craziest things of this world. We live in a crazy world. It's getting crazier. And He's going to preserve you as you keep your eyes fixed on Him. Lord, we thank You for Your great strength that You've chosen to show to us in grace. We know that there's a world out there dying who is going to see Your strength in a different way through a final judgment through condemnation. I thank you that as Christians, we can stand and say we are redeemed and there is now no condemnation for us. We have seen your strength in the cross and the grace and mercy that flow from the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you. We are utterly grateful, eternally grateful for what you have done. And we ask that you would open our eyes to the influences around us the demonic influences that would pull us toward the God of this world, that we could reject that by your Spirit's strength to worship you alone in all areas of life, to remember who we are as your children, not just individually but together, and that we would serve you and you alone with this one life you've given us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.